So for our fall, our sermon series has been from the book of Hosea, that 8th century prophet B.C. And we have seen, if you've been with us, and if not, this will serve as a little, a little recapitulation, that God had called His servant, His prophet Hosea, to marry a promiscuous and unfaithful woman who was characterized by vile adultery, and that that was done in order to dramatize the guilt of Israel, God's covenant people, for they had committed vile adultery, vile idolatry, and had betrayed their covenant Lord. And in the early weeks of this series, we took the time to see the context of the book and to see that there are consequences for God's covenant people, for breaking God's boundaries. There always has been consequences, and there remain consequences. And then last week, we saw a dramatic scene that the prophet Hosea communicated. That was of that unfaithful wife, the promiscuous wife, on something akin to an auction block. She's being sold by her lovers, her other lovers. And Hosea the husband would show up in that dramatic context and he would purchase his wife. Not to be a slave, but to be his bride again. And with her, he would renew that covenant relationship. He would reestablish the boundaries of covenant love and of faithful marriage. And we saw the beauty of God's mercy and how He has loved an unfaithful people. And He has sought to redeem them with the shedding of His own blood in the person of Jesus Christ. Now this week, for this morning, we're in Hosea chapter 4. And it is another dramatic scene. This time, the setting is something akin to a courtroom. That's what we would know it to be. It's a courtroom kind of experience where the judge rules and demands justice. It's a covenant courtroom where the lead prosecuting attorney brings charges against a party. And the party is Israel, God's covenant people. And that prosecuting attorney will expose ample evidence to prove the guilt of their covenant breaking. And then in further dramatic fashion, that prosecuting attorney that we'll hear in just a moment spins around and points his finger in the face of those whom he ultimately holds responsible for Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. Now who might that be? Who would the prophet point his finger to with the blame and the guilt of God's people's unfaithfulness. We'll give your attention to Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery, 
They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. But let no one bring a charge. Let no one accuse another. For your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution, but not flourish. Because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. My people consult a wooden idol, and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. Though you, Israel, commit adultery, do not let Judah become guilty. Do not go to Gilgal, do not go up to Beth-Avon, and do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. The Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind will sweep them away, and their sacrifices will bring them to shame. Hard words, challenging words, lots of imagery, metaphors that are not familiar to us. Any number of things could be misunderstood when we consider chapter 4 of Hosea. Let's pray that the Lord would bless our understanding and application of His Word. 
Lord, would you take these words written long ago, a very different context, but a people not so unlike ourselves. And would you use these words, though written centuries ago, for our good today? And would you use them, Lord, for what you have promised you would always do through your word? Would you provide us good instruction for our faith in Christ that we would not be a stiff-necked people, that we would not be stubborn in heart, but that we would repent and find you to be the great hope for our mercy that we need in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this as your church in Jesus' name. Amen. So when reading Hosea chapter 4, um, the phrase came to my mind this week, another idiom, Pastor Paul likes idioms, here comes the boom, right? Here comes the boom. So when I was a young boy, my father came home one day with a little sailboat, a little bantam butterfly sailboat. You could put two, two children in it, um, but my memory of that phrase, here comes the boom, goes back to my childhood because in that little sailboat, and I'm not much of a sailor, this is all the sailing I ever did, uh, was just for a few years on Lake Watery, but um, the boom is that metal pole that came up about shoulder high when you're seated in that little, little boat, and when the wind changes direction and the bottom of that sail and that pole are caught by the wind, here comes the boom. The boom will knock you out of the boat, literally. Um, I saw a stat, and I don't remember the number now, but there are a number of deaths as people have been knocked out of boats or hit over the head because here comes the boom. Okay, so Hosea chapter 4, here comes the boom spiritually. Brace yourselves. There's a lot here that would have jolted the original audience, and there's a lot here that should jolt all of us but especially those who have been called to the ministry of the Word. Here comes the boom. So the passage begins with the charge. Remember, this is a lawsuit. This is a covenant lawsuit. This is a courtroom scene. And the Lord has used the prophet Hosea to bring the boom, to bring the charge against His covenant people. And the charge is that they have committed adultery in their relationship with the Lord. They have done that through idolatry, through the worship of other gods. Listen again to verse 1. Here's the charge. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. Now, depending on your translation, it may say the Lord has a controversy. But it's a legal term. It's, it's the same way that we would use the word charge, like a legal charge. And then he gives the charge in the second part of verse 1. There is no faithfulness, no love. And then in my version, this is the NIV, no acknowledgement of God in the land. But quite literally, it is no knowledge of God. Meaning not knowing the Lord. So the condemnation is that you, the people of God, don't know your husband. You don't know him. And that language of know, it's a very biblical, very meaningful language. You might remember in Genesis chapter 4, Adam knew 
his wife, Eve, and she conceived a son. That word know, same root word as here. There is no knowing of the Lord by his people. And that word connotes intimate, personal knowledge. Really knowing the person. Really knowing the other party. And so Hosea's condemnation is, you don't know the Lord. He's your covenant Lord. You've abandoned Him in all of His goodness, in all of His provisions, because you don't really know Him. Now that theme of knowing the Lord carries over into the New Testament. A different word, but the same concept in the Greek. In Matthew chapter 7, do you remember where Jesus says, many will come to me on that day, saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these miracles in your name? And Jesus responds and says what? Away from me, I never knew you. So there's the concept of the Bible is God's people are supposed to know Him as He knows them. And the charge is because they don't know the Lord, they're not like Him at all in the earth. They know no love. They know no mercy. They know no faithfulness. That's the language of, of the charge of the indictment. Literally, he says there's no hesed. The word hesed used throughout Hosea, a beautiful word that I'm going to unpack more in future sermons as it's used more and more in the judgment against Israel. But basically, the, the summary here is that they do not have the character and nature of their husband, the Lord Himself. And that's why they exist. They were to be His special possession, His treasured possession, and were to model His likeness in the earth. And they are nothing like the Lord, and they are being judged for it. Rob Rayburn, in his commentary on this passage, says this, Hosea's great point in this lawsuit against Israel is that the priests have forsaken their true calling and their responsibility, and they bear a primary responsibility for the spiritual defection of the people and the debacle that God is about to bring upon them for their betrayal of the covenant, for their breaking of their marriage with God. The evidence that he will bring as a prosecuting attorney is damning. And I want you to see that evidence, and I want you to consider it. In verse 2 of Hosea 4, he said there's no faithfulness, no love, no knowing of God in the land. And then he says, instead, what is there? What are these people characterized by? They're characterized by cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Now, when you hear that, that should trigger a bell for you, as it would these original hearers, the Israelites. That's essentially a recitation of the Ten Commandments. Not each particular commandment, but basically all of the law, all of the commandments. The NIV says cursing, but really more literally it's swearing in the way that the Lord's name was not to be taken in vain and used for, for leverage or as a good luck charm. Uh, the third commandment, the ninth commandment, the sixth commandment, the eighth commandment, the seventh commandment are all referenced right there in that charge. And so it's the covenant Lord looking at His covenant people saying, you don't look anything like me, nor do you look like what I've called you to look like 
in the earth. You're to be characterized by loving loyalty and faithfulness to me. But now you're characterized, you're really defined by all these gross sins which should never define the people of God. And then he says there in verse 2 that they are boundless. Boundless. What does that mean? Really, it means they have no boundaries. There is nothing that they won't do. They have no fences. It's a free-for-all morally for Israel. But what had God given His people? Boundaries and fences. This is the way of holiness. This is the way my covenant people are to live. And so in a real sense, Israel is ruined. They're nothing like they're supposed to be. And the Lord, remember the big idea, He sends Hosea to stir the pot, to stir the heart, to bring repentance. That's the ultimate aim. But it comes through this indictment and through this listing of evidence. And I've said it almost every week. It's through the badness of the bad news that the goodness of the good news is made sweet to us. And so Hosea is bringing a strong indictment against the people of God. Now it needs to be said, because I've reminded of this, uh, I've reminded us of this each week. There really are consequences for sin. There really are. And those are cited here in verse 3. And I told you in a previous sermon that in Deuteronomy 28, there's the promise of blessings when you obey God's covenant. And there's promise of curses when you break God's covenant. And this is a reference to those curses in Deuteronomy 28. Listen to how he sums those curses up. Because of this, because of your unfaithfulness, the land dries up, all who live in it waste away, the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are all swept away. Which is to say, the reason you are suffering is because of your unfaithfulness to the Lord. Even the birds and the beasts and the fish are affected by your sin. That's pretty strong language, and there's some hyperbole there, but it is true. It's part of the curse that God had promised them. They would be cursed in their going and in their coming. And those curses have come true for the covenant people of God. The consequences would be ruined land and ruined people. And what we have here is even the worship of God has been ruined. The worship of God had now been shaped into the likeness of Baalism. And this has angered the Lord. This has hurt the Lord. That they would take the worship they had been given and they would tinker with it. And they would corrupt it. And they would conform God into their own preferences and into their own likeness, into their own image. Which, remember, the reverse of that is what He said they should do. They were to be conformed to His image and now they're conforming Him to their own image. And this is a part of the curse and the consequence of their sin. Now, all that is the context and the nature of what's happening here. But here comes the real sermon. And here comes the boom. This is where Hosea points his finger at the cause. And I want to sum it up this way. The, the real question is, how did we get here? How did it get this bad? What happened? How could the covenant people of God come to such ruin? How did it go so wrong? And Hosea answers that question. 
And it's a very shocking and startling and frightening answer. Because Hosea points his finger at the priesthood, at the priests, at the ministers. It's literally what he does. The cause of guilt, the blame, falls with the priesthood. So very quickly, to make sure we understand, what what was the priesthood? Remember, we're told about the priesthood and God's giving of it in Leviticus. And through the tribe of Levi, God set apart a particular people, and they had one job. That was to maintain the worship of Yahweh. They were to be the ministers. And the priesthood existed basically for that one job. That was their designated duty, to keep Yahweh's worship and holiness before the people all the time. To hold true to that one calling. And their worship concluded or included the Torah, the law. It included sacrifice. And it included praise. And those three things of the law and of sacrifice and of praise, those would keep Israel, the people of God, that would keep them square and in line of who they were and who their God was. But what happened? And this is what Hosea speaks to. The priesthood became corrupt. And the simplest way to explain this, pardon, pardon the effort, I'm sure it's, it's got all kinds of problems in it. But imagine that you had been given a family recipe, your great-great-grandma's meatloaf. Everybody likes meatloaf, right? And you had taken that recipe and and tinkered with it. It was an award-winning recipe. But you said, you know what? I want to put a little bit of this in it, and I want to put a little bit of that. And uh, and these, these neighbors of ours, you know, the Baalites, they've got their own little recipes. So let's actually, let's take some of their recipe and their ingredients and let's mix it with, with great-great-grandma's meatloaf recipe. This was called syncretism, spiritually. This was Israel borrowing from the other surrounding nations and adding to their worship things that they thought were really cool, things that they thought would bless them and make them prosper in some way. And so this syncretism, uh, parents, you can talk to children about this over your meatloaf lunch. Syncretism was was literally taking a little bit of this, taking a little bit of that, and adding it to God's recipe that He had given His covenant people in how to live for Him, how to worship Him. They had made a meatloaf out of the worship of Yahweh, and the Lord would not accept it. The Lord would reject it. Now, how did this play out for the priests? How did their corruption play out? Well, they let worship be corrupted. They borrowed the practice of the Baals and the worship of Baal. We talked last week about the sacred raisin cakes and the hope of fertility, both for people and for their land. That's one example of syncretism. The reference here to the pole and to the wood is likely the Asherah pole, which was a part of the worship of Baal. Um, to keep it PG-rated, quite literally, the reference here to the trees and the shade of the trees 
all kinds of sexual immorality happening around the Asherah pole and under the shade of the trees. Um, stuff you'd be embarrassed to read about in the news, but that has been in the news recently. That's how Israel was living. Later in Hosea chapter 6, he'll say Ephraim, which is a name for Israel, mixes with the nations, which is to say they're making meatloaf out of their faith in Yahweh and out of their worship. It is corrupt, and the question to ask is, well, then how and why did the priests let this happen? They only had one job. Was it that hard of a job? Well, here's the truth. In verse 7, listen again to verse 7. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. Here's the quick summary of what we believe this means. It either means the more priests there were, the more the priests sin, or the more people there were, the more they sinned and then came to the priests to deal with their sin. Now here's the bottom line. This is the takeaway on the priesthood. Remember that when you brought a sacrifice for your sins, it was the duty of the priest to handle the meat. It was the duty of the priest to offer the sacrifice. And what we know from the sons of Eli and from other accounts and what is being referenced here is that the more the people sinned, the more meat the priests got, the bigger the barbecues. And the priests started to connect the dots with, okay, if the people sin, they have to bring us more meat. We're happy with them sinning. We'll let them go astray because it's bigger barbecues for us, quite literally. And the Lord says, my priests are getting fat off of the sins of the people. Now, that's pretty bad news for the people when they have a crooked priest or a crooked priesthood. But let's not forget in Jeremiah chapter 5, we're told of similar corruption and it says that the people loved it this way. So the people were happy to sin. They would bring their sacrifice. And the priests were happy with the sacrifice. Let the people sin. And so the very purpose of the priesthood was compromised and was corrupted. It was no longer the ministry of the Word and the ministry of worship. It was now getting fat and happy off of the sins and the waywardness of Israel. And that is the heart of the covenant lawsuit. And the finger points at the priesthood, at the priests, at those responsible for bringing the Word of God to the people of God. This is why he says here two times, or is it three in Hosea 4, my people die because of a lack of knowledge. They do not truly know the Lord. They know about the Lord, but they don't know the Lord. And remember, we've talked about that distinctive here at GPC. We don't want people to just know about the Lord. We want people to know the Lord in that true, intimate, and personal way. That's the concept that's happening here. The people knew about the Lord, but they did not know the Lord. And now they would be judged for it. They had compromised the worship of God. They had compromised 
the Word of God. And it was all foolish. It was folly. And the Lord used prophets to try to convince them of their waywardness and their stubbornness. I don't know how to make this more clear other than to share from another prophet the same subject in the same timeline with the same people. But so that you could feel the folly of abandoning the worship of Yahweh and the word of the Lord for idols and for Baalism, I want you to listen to the words of Isaiah. These are selections from chapter 44. Listen from the tone of this prophet. And, and, and the idea is the absurdity of giving up the true worship of the true God and His Word for wooden idols and for things created in our own image. Listen to the words of Isaiah. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. And then he says this, All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds are closed so that they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge. Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person, person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, Jacob. For you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Do you feel the tension of how crazy it is to build a God, to carve a God out of wood or to fashion one with metal, to speak to it as if it can save you, as if it can answer your prayers? Isaiah says it's folly, it's foolish, it's wrong. 
And you will fail. You will die because of your lack of knowledge. You're not knowing the truth. So I want to end the sermon with four applications. There's something for everyone here. And it's maybe uncomfortable for some of us. I'll start with the priests. That is, those who are in the office of ministry. Rob Rayburn says this, just to be clear about our subject. He says, The priests of the Old Testament were what we call ministers and pastors today. Their responsibility, according to Deuteronomy 33, was the preaching of the Word and the superintendence of public worship. When the church was reorganized after Pentecost, the apostles undertook those functions and subsequently ministers, as they do in most churches today, whatever title they may be given. What Hosea says about the priests has direct application to those we Presbyterians call ministers, pastors, and teaching elders. Let me remind you, this is the harshest language of the Bible. And the finger is pointed at the priesthood. And that's pretty uncomfortable. But that's where the guilt lay. The people had become like the priests. The people go as the pulpit goes. And the pulpit goes as the seminaries go. And this is a sobering passage for all of us to remember how critically important it is that the pulpit be faithful to the Word of God. Because as the pulpit goes, so the people will go. That's the lesson in Hosea chapter 4. That's the lesson for the priests. Now, for the people, for the laity, for the members, let's remember what he says. He says his people are like a stubborn heifer. And I don't want to assume we all know what a heifer is, um, but I did grow up on a cattle ranch. And I have my memory and lessons learned from the cows getting out and, and those young teenage heifers being the ones that would check every fence, test every fence. And though they are fed and watered and well taken care of, they just want out. They just want out. And then when they get out, you're going to spend a while chasing them down and trying to get them back in the fence. I understand stubborn heifers. I understand why my dad would refer to people as stubborn heifers. And that's the language of the Bible towards you and towards me. We can be like stubborn heifers. We're just rambunctious. We just won't obey. We're wayward. We're looking to get lost. We're wanting to stray. And we're warned by this. So the priests are warned. The people are warned. Thirdly, worship itself. And what we heard from Isaiah 44 about we will give ourselves to idols. In our stubbornness, he literally says, we'll carve blocks of wood and then look to them to speak to us. We'll look for direction and instruction from a block of wood that we have crafted for ourselves. That's how Israel did it, but you and I do it, and we do it in different kinds of hokey ways. But the worship of God always is centered on Him and is directed by His Word. And we're reminded that there's great folly when we break that equation and when we drift from it. And now my fourth application. In verse 14, um, it's, it's, a, it's a bit cumbersome, and there are probably better translations 
um, than the one that I read, but I can make the point from this. Listen to this again. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution. Okay, we don't understand. What does that mean? Nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery. So is the Lord saying that's okay? Go ahead and, and go into prostitution and adultery? No, 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 no. Here comes the boom. Here comes the boom. Because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes, a people without understanding will come to ruin. Let me condense that into this statement. The Lord is saying, I'm not going to the women first for their unfaithfulness. I'm going to the men because the men have given themselves to sin and the women have followed their lead. And so he's come hard at the priests. He's come hard at the people. And now he comes hard at the men, the men of Israel who were responsible for their households, for their homes, for their wives, for their daughters. The finger now comes at the men. It says, I'm not coming first to judge the women. It's the men of Israel who have failed. They've not led their families in fidelity and faithfulness. That's the priest's doing, but I'm holding the men responsible too. Four very uncomfortable applications that Hosea the prophet makes in the 8th century B.C., And do they not all apply directly to every one of us? It's the wisdom of God's Word spoken in different ages and eras by different people, but always driving the truth home that sin has ruined us. There's a million different ways that we've we've broken and shattered the image of God, but there is one way to return to Him. One way. And that's by faith and trust in His Word and in the person of God. Of Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah chapter 23, another prophet, this is the third prophet I'm quoting this morning, I know, but listen to the promise made here in verses 5 and 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. And so Hosea chapter 4 is an invitation to repent for every one of us. And it's the invitation to look for the righteous one, the rock the king who alone can save a stubborn, stiff-necked, wayward, and wandering people. Let's pray, and then we have a hymn to remind us where our hope truly rests. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard words. They're uncomfortable for every one of us to hear and to consider. But Lord, we pray that even now, Hosea the prophet still being used to stir hard hearts that Your Spirit would soften us. Help us to admit our sin, our ruin, our misery. And help us look to the One who is our rock and our Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen.